Legacies, where we every single episode dive into the stories and the players and the legends that make up the mythology of baseball and have made this the game that we love so much. My name is Daniel Port, and I am excited to have you here with us today. When we talked about Adam Wainwright and the Mandela effect last week, I distinctly I mentioned that I distinctly remember him being like a sixty war guy who at least won Cy Young, and then it turns out he never won a Cy Young, and his peak was a lot shorter than I remember. He only managed about 45 war, and this really stuck with me. And in many ways, while he was a much better player than Wainwright, I think my brain did much the same thing with today's subject as well in Miguel Cabrera, at least especially when it comes to longevity and war totals. If I were to have you guess what Miguel Cabrera's career war totals might have been, you would probably guess somewhere in at least the, the 80s, if not, the, if not higher. Just because you're thinking, one, two MVPs, he was one of the greatest hitters to ever play the game, and you would have expected a lot higher. And yet, he only really amassed about 67.3 war across his entire career. He had only three seasons with more than seven war, and he never topped eight war in a single season, which just blew my mind. I was expecting to have, like, top ten discussions regarding the list when it came to Miggy, but now I I, I don't know you know, I don't know where to start that discussion. And here's the thing, though. To some degree, I think those war numbers lie. Or... If they don't lie, per se, they don't really tell the whole story of Miguel Cabrera's impact. And we'll get there as we dive into a lot of his defensive numbers and things like that. But just to look at some of his peak. From 2004 to roughly 2013, there wasn't a more feared hitter in baseball outside of maybe Barry Bonds. He was one of just 27 players ever to hit the, to win the hitting triple crown and he's the only hitter to pull it off since 1967 and just barely missed pulling it off two years in a row. He hit over 30 home runs in 10 seasons while he hit over 311 seasons and pulled it off in 10 out of 11 straight seasons from 2005 to 2016. And in one of those seasons where he didn't make that mark over that stretch, he hit 292. So not exactly that far off from it. For 12 consecutive seasons, he put up an OPS plus of at least 130 and played it over 100 RBIs in 10 consecutive seasons. If you look at Cabrera's peak, which, as I mentioned before, ran from about 2004 to 2016, only Albert Pujols and David Ortiz hit more home runs over that time period. But he absolutely waxed them in batting average and had had them both beat in RBIs, OBP, OPS, and WRC+. He was the number three hitter in baseball reference war over that time period behind Pujols and Adrian Beltre, but number one in Fangraph's war. No one hit more doubles, and only Pujols scored more runs. And that's over a 12-year period. We're genuinely talking about either 1A or 1B of the most feared hitters of Miguel Cabrera's generation. And that's before we get to the big picture numbers, even. Uh, he played the majority of his career at first base, a decent chunk at third base as well. And 
that's really what Baseball Reference refers to him as when comparing his career numbers to other players. So I'm going to do the same here. He's 13th all-time in war amongst first basemen. 10th in home runs with 511. He's 6th in RBIs and 3rd in doubles. Amongst first basemen with over 10,000 career at-bats, only Ty Cobb, Tris Speaker, Cap Anson, and Stan Musial had a higher career batting average than Miguel Cabrera's career 306 mark. Musial would have been the most recent before Miggy when he retired in 1963, by the way. None of those players have more home runs than Miguel Cabrera. Oh, and did I mention he had over 3,000 hits in his career? That's a pretty nice feather in his cap. So then why such a low war number, relatively speaking, of course? One, he was a pretty terrible defender his entire career. According to Defensive War, he never had a season where he made a positive impact defensively. And overall, for his career, he was worth a whopping negative 21.4 war defensively, which dragged his total war overall way, way down. Two, injuries uh, really sapped him of all of his power for about the last seven or so years of his career and made him, for the most part, a zero-war player for that part of his career. Think of it this way. Heading into his 2017 season, Miggy was worth 69 war. He finished his career seven years later worth 67.3 war. That means he lost war from there on out. Now... I think Miggy's probably a, a Hall of Famer, at least when we talk about the baseball stuff, no matter what. And we'll dive into this a couple times today, but you have to wonder how that number would have looked if he had moved to DH at some point in his career. We'll talk about that way more in depth later, but it just really, you have to wonder if it would have extended his career, if it would have allowed him to not take the wear and tear of playing defense, all of those sort of things. But more on that later. But there is a reason why I spent so much time working through all the numbers I just listed. It's easy to get lost in the negative at times with Miguel Cabrera and lose sight of just how thoroughly he has an argument for the best pure hitter of his generation. It's really between him, Pujols, and Joey Votto for that title. And honestly, as much as I love Votto, it's mostly a two-horse race between Miggy and Pujols. That's how good he was. And just so we don't lose the forest for the trees getting too bogged down in his war numbers and defensive deficiencies, and unfortunately, and we'll get there, some pretty icky legal issues throughout his career. We'll get there. But as a player, Miguel Cabrera was a truly special and unique player, as you will see throughout the story we'll be telling today. In fact, if you'll bear with me here, we're going to take our first break here real quick, and then we're going to dive straight into spinning the tale of one Miguel Cabrera. Welcome back. I know a few episodes back we talked about how Bryce Harper was the baseball prodigy of his generation. And Miguel Cabrera's origin came with just as much hype at an even younger age. According to Scott Posnanski's write-up for the Athletics' Top 100, there were scouts trying to sign Cabrera out in Venezuela as young as 16 years old. And in 1999, he would indeed sign with the then-Florida Marlins for $2 million dollars And as Y2K came and went, at the tender age of 17, Miguel Cabrera would find himself playing already in low A-ball. That's incredible. His rise through the minors is a bit of a strange one, but really an expected one considering his age. He stayed at A-ball for the entirety of the 2001 season. And despite struggling, he hits just 7 home runs in 110 games to the tune of a 709 OPS. 
he found himself in high A ball for the 2002 season. He would improve slightly, hitting 274 with 9 home runs in 124 games, which is good for 754 OPS. But he did hit 43 doubles, and it's worth noting he was playing shortstop at this point, by the way. Baseball America supported the rapid ascent, naming him the number two prospect in the Marlins system at the time, and projected him to make the leap to double A in the next season, which would indeed happen. You have to wonder if some of that's, I talked a lot about, when you start seeing a high number of doubles, you have to start wondering at what point do those doubles start, you know, getting another 10 feet on them or 20 feet on them and becoming home runs or whatnot. And clearly I feel like that's part of what they saw in in Cabrera at this point was, was someone who was going to grow into power, uh, uh, even at that age, and must have liked his approach and the things that he was doing there to keep advancing him, even if he wasn't necessarily performing well at that level. So now, in 2003, at just 20 years old, Cabrera arrives in A and just takes off. He It was clear he wasn't destined to stay there very long. In just 69 games, he crushed the ball hitting 365 with 10 home runs and 29 doubles with a 1.038 OPS. By all accounts, he was looking like a comfortable hitter already, way beyond his much older peers, which again, considering his age, is astonishing. He was incredibly young for AA at this point. Now, sufficiently impressed with his growth, the Marlins wasted no time getting him on the Major League roster. And on June 20th, 2003, Miguel Cabrera would make his Major League debut. And let me tell you, it was quite the debut. Despite playing mostly shortstop throughout the minors, the Marlins needed help in the outfield that year. And so initially, Cabrera came up to play left field of all things, which is mind-blowing uh, until you look back. And we're used to the bigger, older, and heftier Miguel Cabrera. But back then, he still looked pretty svelte. I could see him playing left field. He does not necessarily play it well, is what I'll tell you. Um but it didn't go fairly smoothly, especially in his debut game. But the real theatrics of the game come down in the bottom of the 11th. So Cabrera still hadn't gotten a hit in his first game. But he comes up to the plate in the bottom of the 11th, looking to get a bunch of career firsts out of the way. And he delivered huge, smacking the first pitch he saw, 491 feet for his first career hit, his first career home run, and his first career walk-off home run all in one swing of the bat. It was like a scene out of a movie, like something you'd see in like The Natural or something. And entering this game, the Marlins would sit in fourth place in the division, but this gave the team the jolt they needed. By the time the season was over, they'd won 91 games and finished second in the NL East, which was good enough to earn them a wild card ticket to the playoffs. Overall, in the season, Cabrera, who had been inserted pretty much immediately in the heart of the Marlins order, had a great rookie year, hitting 268 with 12 home runs, 21 doubles, and 62 RBIs across 87 games with a 793 OPS, which was good for a 106 OPS+. Plus. He would finish 5th in Rookie of the Year voting, uh, along with his teammate and fellow rookie-slash-good friend Dontrell Willis, who ran away with the award after putting up a 4.4 war season. Even if technically... Rookie Brandon Webb had the best rookie season in the NL with a 5.9 mark. Dontra Willis was just electric. We'll do a we'll do a Willis episode sometime. Uh, it makes sense that uh, between that and the huge push that he gave to the Marlins as they were making that uh, that, that comeback run, it makes sense that he ended up winning kind of the narrative battle there. But all in all, it was a pretty great debut for the uh, 21, uh, sorry, 20 year old. And again. 
20 years old, it's worth noting that if you were 20 years old in the majors and you put up a 106 OPS plus, which means you were a better than average hitter, that's incredible for 20 years old. It's just really impressive. Now, if you thought starting your career off with a walk-off home run was special, the playoffs would take this whole narrative to a, a whole nother level. First, the Marlins would face the Giants in the division series. The Fish would win the series in four games with Miggy batting 286 with three RBIs in the series. The NLCS, though, against the Cubs would be where Miggy would truly cement himself into Marlins lore as he would catch absolute fire against the Cubs, hitting 333 with three home runs and six RBIs across the seven-game series. That series is pretty iconic. It's mostly famous for the, well, infamous Steve Bartman incident. Listen to my Mark Pryor and Moises Alou episodes for more on that in Game 6. But it's also the series that put Miguel Cabrera on the map on one of the largest stages in the game. In particular, his three-run home run in the first thing off of Kerry Wood in Game 7 got the Marlins off and started in the right direction and was an LCS record for a rookie. Until then, no rookie had ever hit three home runs in uh, any of the championship series uh, for either league. You'd end up with four RBIs in the game, and the Marlins would win the game 9-6 to six and book their ticket to the World Series. And I need you to know with all apologies to the Marlins fans out there, but I I hate the Marlins. This is something, it's just a funny thing. It has nothing to do with anything rational, for the record. They ruined two World Series chances for my two favorite teams. First, they beat Cleveland, my hometown team, in 1997 and essentially ruined my childhood forever. Uh, yes, you, the Miami Marlins, the now Miami Marlins, ruined my childhood, scarred me forever. And then, as I mentioned in other episodes, when I was growing up, my best friend was a Cubs fan and we could watch him on WGN. And so I ended up growing up also a Cubs fan. And especially then Sammy Sosa comes around. And I was obsessed with Sammy Sosa. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it, but I was obsessed with that era of the Cubs. And so this loss also just just devastated me all over again. So two of the more crushing sports losses in my life have come at the hand of the Florida slash Miami Marlins. And I just need you to know, I love you all, the, my, my, my Florida Marlins fans that I know, but I hate your team. Anyways, I don't hold a grudge, I swear. Yes, I do. It reminds me of, to tell a funny side story, so I live in Denver, Colorado now, and but I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. My family's from Cleveland, so that meant if you follow football, I grew up, unfortunately, a, a Browns fan. And not as passionate as my father, who grew up in like the Browns' heyday of like Bernie Kosar and the Cardiac Kids in the, in the 1980s. And when I moved to Denver, my father looked at me and said, one thing, he goes, I support it, but you can never wear a single ounce of Broncos gear. Because the main rival for the Browns at the time were the Broncos back then in the 80s. And actually, they beat the Browns several different times in very famous games that get names like the drive and the fumble and things like that to keep them from going to the Super Bowl many times. And my significant other went to grad school out here, fell in love with the Broncos as a Broncos fan. And to this day, he did the good dad thing. He wanted to be supportive. He wanted to do those things. And so he'll talk about the Broncos, he'll discuss them, but it, it stops short at ever actually rooting for them or or putting on a, a jersey or anything like that. And it's, it's hilarious because it's, it was in the 1980s, it's 30, 30 years ago. 
no, 40 almost, and he still holds a grudge about it. And so, Miami fans, again, I, I apologize, but uh, yes, I guess I do still hold a grudge about it. Anyways, on to the World Series, where Miggy and the Marlins would face the evil empire, the New York Yankees. And I think this was the first time in my life at 18 years old I'd ever rooted for the Yankees, but I admit that I did. I felt a little dirty doing it, but I did do it. Much to my dismay, the Marlins would win the series in six games, and while Cabrera would only get four hits in the series, one of them was a two-run home run off of Roger Clemens in a crucial game four that turned the whole series around. It's also one of the more flex-on-someone home runs I've ever seen in my life. There's one of those things that we always make the comment about. Pitcher throws in on a hitter. You go, well, get a hit off of him. I'll shut him up. Or vice versa, pitcher, instead of hitting a batter, will strike him out next time. This actually happened. If you go watch this home run, it's great. Clemens throws one uh, high and tight to Cabrera on the first pitch of the at-bat. Almost hits him in the face. And Cabrera just gives him the death stare. It just glares at him the whole time. And this is, this is Roger Clemens. He's both an enormous human being, he's terrifying, and a crazy person. So, while you would have expected that next ball to go right in his ear hole. It doesn't, but they end up battling through about six more pitches or so. And on that seventh pitch, Miggy gets a perfect high fastball. He fouled off several pitches before this to stay alive and just absolutely tees off on this ball, crushing it for a home run and taking a couple extra seconds to, to let Clemens know that that is what happens when you throw high and tight into Miguel Cabrera. And it's important to remember, he's still 20 years old at this point, right? And hitting home runs off of the best pitchers in baseball on the biggest stage in baseball and acting with with the swagger to go along with it. It's incredible. Uh, absolutely incredible. Now, as I said, the Marlins would go on to win the, the series. And I hadn't planned it this way, but last episode, if you remember... We found Adam Wainwright stepping up big as a rookie and winning a World Series in his rookie season. And here we find Miguel Cabrera in the exact same situation, getting the start of his career, leaving a lasting impression on both Marlins fans and baseball history right from the get-go. Again, 20 years old, in his first year in the league. It's incredible. It's just funny when the universe works out that way for you. I hear sometimes I step into podcast gold. Now, the 2004 season brought a lot of change to the newly crowned champs. If you know anything about the Marlins from this time period, management was pretty notorious, at least amongst the fans, for winning a World Series. And then, instead of running it back, they would immediately sell off any expensive piece they could, to get, could get rid of to get their payroll down. And whether that's fair or not, I don't know. But in the offseason, they do indeed let Pudge Rodriguez and Todd Hollinsworth walk in free agency. And they traded Derek Lee to the Cubs as well as Juan Encarnacion to the Dodgers. Eventually, in that same season, they would even trade valuable pitcher Brad Penny. All in all, they shipped out 69 home runs and replaced with just 31. It wasn't that crazy, though, because moving Encarnacion at the very least opened up right field full-time for Miguel Cabrera. And like I said, I'm not sure how valuable the criticism was because they ended up getting help from a couple young players. And so you have to figure there's some purpose to moving those players for cheaper pieces and to give them a shot. But nonetheless, I know that's what it felt like at the time. And what's what you saw was a lot of people being like, oh, it's a fire sale right after winning a World Series. And it showed up one, for one reason or another in the results. The Marlins win just 83 games and finished third in the NL East in 2004. 
Cabrera, for his part, had a monster season. At the tender age of 21, Miggy picked up right where he left off in the playoffs, hitting 294 across 160 games with 33 home runs, 31 doubles, 112 RBIs, and 101 runs scored to go along with an 879 OPS, which is good for a 130 OPS+. plus. He goes to his first All-Star game and was worth 3.5 war, earning him a 22nd place finish in the MVP voting, which doesn't sound like much, but again, remember, he's 21 at this point. All in all, a pretty successful follow-up to his rookie breakout year. And it's worth noting that just 14 hitters, including Cabrera, have hit at least 33 home runs at age 21 or younger. And it's a who's who of some of the best home run hitters ever. Jimmy Fox, Mel Ott, Alex Rodriguez, Eddie Matthews, Albert Pujols, Hal Trotsky, Juan Soto, Frank Robinson, Cody Bellinger, Bob Horner, Gio Carlin Stanton, Ronald Acuna Jr., and Jose Canseco. That's a pretty good company to be in. It was clear that Miggy was going places, and one of those places already felt like the Hall of Fame. Like I, I know it sounds crazy, but as I was alive then. I was I was in college, and that's how it felt. That's how people talked. We had never seen a hitter liked, and it was genuinely how it felt. I really do. I swear. In case you wondered if Miggy could keep it going heading into 2005. He absolutely could. In fact, he got even better. Across 158 games, he hit 323 with another 33 home runs, 116 RBIs, 106 runs scored, 43 doubles, and a 947 OPS, which is good for a 151 OPS+. plus. Since he was now just 22, this made him the youngest player ever to have back-to-back seasons with at least 33 home runs. He's an all-star again and wins his first Silver Slugger award. He finished 5th in MVP voting thanks to a 5.2 war value. And this was actually a pretty stacked year for MVP voting with 6 hitters finishing above that number. And Albert Pujols deservedly won it by leading the league in war with 8.4 wins above replacement. But 5th was a good spot for a 21-year-old having a pretty fantastic season at that age. That's pretty darn good. I'm sorry. Now, unfortunately, the Marlins floundered despite Miggy's fantastic season winning just 83 games again and again finishing just third in the NL East, missing the playoffs. In 2006, Cabrera would play for Venezuela in the first World Baseball Classic, finishing in seventh. And with the departure of longtime third baseman Mike Lowell, this season would mark the first Cabrera would man the hot corner full-time for the Marlins. He would excel once again, playing in 158 games while hitting 339 with 26 home runs, 114 RBIs, 112 runs scored, 50 doubles, and a 998 OPS, which would be good for a 159 OPS+. He was worth 5.8 war, went to his third All-Star game, won his second Silver Slugger for the second year in a row, he finished 5th in the MVP voting, which is pretty accurate considering he actually finished 6th in the in war in the National League while finishing within one hit of winning the NL batting title. Unfortunately, while things kept trending upward for Cabrera, things got worse for the Marlins, as they would struggle all season long, winning only 78 games and dropping all the way to fourth in the NL East. You could feel the tension throughout the team all season long. The frustration would boil over on July 9th of that year in the fifth inning of a game against the Mets. Miggy biffed a ball at third that should have been pretty routine. If he'd gotten his body in front of the ball instead of trying to backhand it, he would have made the play pretty easily. This allowed a run to score, and rookie pitcher Scott Olson apparently voiced rather forcefully his uh, disapproval after the inning. They argued all the way to the dugout, and according to reports, ended with Mickey decking him and a fight ensuing. 
Now, according to manager Joe Girardi, they made up afterwards and were fine, but that kind of thing takes a toll on a team. Uh, side note, Olsen wouldn't last terribly long in the league. He played just six years and amassed just 1.7 war in his career, and you have to wonder how much his temper played into that because this was the second time one of his teammates decked him already that season. The second time! I thought you would get the message at the first time, but what do I know? Heck, Girardi once a year had to grab him by his jersey and pull him aside to get him to stop complaining about an umpire once. So this one might not have been Mickey's fault, but it gives you some insight into the state of the Marlins at the time. The Marlins slide into the basement of the NL East would continue in 2007, where they would win just 71 games and end up in last place in the league. This didn't really affect Mickey's production, though, as he would play at 157 games, hitting 320 with 34 home runs, with 119 RBIs, 38 doubles, and 91 runs to go along with a 965 OPS, which is good for a 150 OPS+. plus. He didn't win the Silver Slugger that year, but he would be named to the All-Star Game for the fourth year in a row while finishing 15th in MVP voting thanks to a 3.2 war mark. That sounds pretty low for a season where a player had over 300 with 30-plus home runs and 119 RBIs, right? This is where his defense took an absolute nosedive. He put together 5.2 offensive war, but his defense is worth a future negative 1.7 defensive war. You basically see his defensive war tank his numbers the rest of his career from here on out. Heading into the 2007 season, Miggy had been awarded a $7.4 million contract in arbitration and was set to see that number jump up to $11.3 million in 2008. For a team that had won just 71 games that year, it seemed like that wasn't in the Marlins' best interest since they were neck deep in the beginning of a full rebuild. That's a lot of money for that stage of where they were at. So in December 2007, the Marlins would trade Miguel Cabrera to the Detroit Tigers for a busload of players, including Andrew Miller, Dallas Trahern, Burke Badenhop, and Cameron Mabin, amongst others. For the first time in his career, Miggy found himself hitting in the American League with a new home in Comerica Park, where he would end up spending the entire rest of his career becoming a Detroit icon. The Tigers would sign Cabrera to an eight-year extension heading into the 2008 season, and he wasted absolutely no time adjusting to the American League and showing he was worth the money, at least at the plate, that is. Across 160 games, he hit 292 with an AL leading 37 home runs with 127 RBIs, 85 runs scored, and 36 doubles, which was good for an 887 OPS, which was good for a 130 OPS+. plus. He finished 13th in the MVP voting, which felt right considering he was worth just 2.7 war in the year, thanks again to another abysmal negative 1.7 war defensively at third base. This is where I think it's time we have a particular discussion, right? So... Like, why, why didn't the Tigers use Cabrera as a DH? And some of it was that every time the thought would come up, someone else needed DH more, like eventually Victor Martinez, or here it's Gary Sheffield, who that year Detroit used as a 39-year-old. It made sense he probably had the DH, but he hit 225 with 19 home runs, so it's not like the DH position wasn't open for them to use Cabrera at. Now you're thinking, Dan, don't you also accumulate negative defensive war if you're the DH? Absolutely. But to make my point, let's hop over to Fangraph's war and their defensive component of their war metric. Their default, if a player DHs the entire year, is to dock them negative 17.1 defense. But it's worth remembering that that's a value proposition. They're docking the player because the team still has to find another player to play in the field, rather than playing that player there and not needing to, to 
two players. And that's a team-building number. It measures the player's impact on how the team needs to be constructed, which is indeed a negative impact, but that's different than the impact the player has if you put them on the field. Uh, suddenly, their poor defense affects the balls in play and pitcher outcomes and whether or not you actually win games as opposed to a value proposition. I understand where they're coming from with the DH. It's not the same, if that makes sense. Um, now, sure, uh, Defensive War sees a, a DH as having the same negative value as a fielder who amasses the same number of negative war in the field. But again, I'd argue they're different. Now, Miggy had at least four seasons of negative 16 defense or worse. I'd argue that means his defense had a far greater negative impact than if you played him at the DH. And if you listen to many of the past episodes I've done involving DHs, such as David Ortiz or Edgar Martinez, sure, I've dinged them in the big picture. But I have acknowledged it was still better than how short or limited their career had been if they had to play the field especially in the case of players forced to DH by injuries, such as Edgar or Paul Molitor, who probably would have never been able to keep playing. We're only six years away or so from the point at which Miggy will go from the greatest hitter alive to a replacement-level player, and you have to wonder if his ankles and back and legs give out at that point if he had been DHing his whole career. So, anyways, this is something to think and rant about, but I understand the war component for DH. I disagree with it when I'm evaluating players sometimes. So back to the 2008 season. It's worth noting that while the Tigers would soon be going all-in to build a contender in Detroit, Miggy was really the first piece of that all-in process. So the Tigers weren't truly successful yet, finishing with a paltry 74 wins and finishing dead last in the AL Central. With Miggy's incredible output that season, though, it was clear they didn't stop there in terms of building the future, and it was bright in Detroit indeed. Now, heading into 2009... Cabrera would again represent Venezuela in the World Baseball Classic and would find vastly more success this time around, reaching the semifinals and finishing fourth overall. Miggy would carry that momentum over into the regular season and got off to a hot start right out of the gate, hitting 377 with four home runs in April and 340 with six home runs and 23 RBIs in May. This led to an excellent season overall, hitting 324 with 34 home runs, 34 doubles, 103 RBIs and 96 runs scored to go along with a 942 OPS, which is good for a 144 OPS+. plus. Somehow, despite this hot start, he didn't make the All-Star game behind Mark Teixeira, Justin Morneau, Carlos Pena, and Kevin Euclid, nor would he win the Silver Slugger Award, but he would finish fourth in the AL MVP voting. His 5.1 war was well behind Ben Zobrist, of all people, who led the AL hitters in war with an 8.6 mark, but nine other hitters finished ahead of him as well in war in yet another example of his negative .9 defensive war holding him back overall. Nevertheless, he was a leader for the surging Tigers, and his bat was well worth it. This also marked the first full season for Cabrera as the full-time first baseman for the Tigers, who now had Brandon Inge manning the hot corner. Thanks to Cabrera's excellent season along with a resurgent 27 home run season from Inge himself and a 30 home run season from the Grandy man himself, Curtis Granderson, as well as, I should say, breakout seasons also from Justin Verlander and Rick Porcello and the newly added Edwin Jackson, the Tigers made a huge leap in both the win column and the standings, winning 86 games and finishing second in the AL Central. 
Unfortunately, it wasn't enough to win a wild card, but once again, Detroit wasn't done yet. There would be more additions coming, and it was a sign that things were heading in the right direction for the second year in a row. Not all things, though, were bright in Detroit for Cabrera, as we also saw the first inklings that something was amiss with Cabrera in terms of his personal life and what we would soon find out were his struggles with alcoholism. In the early morning of October 3rd, 2009, police were called to the Cabrera home and took him in for questioning. Apparently, according to the story, Cabrera had come home at 6 a.m. after a night of drinking at the nearby Townshend Hotel and got into an argument with his wife. And he was seen later that day at a game at Comerica Park with scratches on his face. Cabrera told reporters that the scratches came from his dog and he refused to discuss the matter further. And... Slowly, a lot of information came out about the incident. According to the 911 call coming from his wife at the time, that she was saying on the call that he had hit her and that she felt uncomfortable going back downstairs. And, and it was just a, a mess of a situation. No one was charged in the situation, but it was later reported that he had a blood alcohol level of 0.26 when tested, which is insanely high. And I remember when this happened, because it's it's fascinating going back and looking at it in retrospect, because at the time, it was mostly painted as a potential domestic abuse allegation going the other way, because he had shown up with the scratches and things like that, that, like, people, you'd see, like, articles coming out was, like, wife not charged, things like that, and then you come back and hear the 911 call, and it feels should be going in the other direction. And, of course... There is no excuse, there is no place in anywhere, let alone baseball, for domestic abuse and for hitting a woman or hitting another person. Obviously, this is unacceptable behavior. And I, like, obviously, if she said it on the 911 call, I'm going to believe. That is what I'm going to believe. There's obviously a lot of mitigating circumstances. We weren't there. We don't know what happened. No one was charged, which isn't uncommon in abusive relationships. And it's just, it's difficult to really know what happened. And so I'm struggling a little bit with it, I'll admit. And this is obviously even when you get into the behavior of beyond just what he did in that situation, being out until 6 a.m., drinking on the, the night before a game. None of this is good. None of it's good and all condemnable. Now, on the other side of that, though, on January 21st, 2010, it was reported that Cabrera would, had spent three months in an alcohol abuse treatment center to help him recover from his alcoholism and his addiction to alcohol. And he had said at the time that he had not consumed any alcohol since he was taken into custody in October 2009 for the incident at his home, and that he would continue his treatment into spring training and the regular season. And don't get me wrong, I'm torn in a lot of different directions here. We all do horrible things sometimes in our lives, and we all make mistakes, and we all have things that go on. And the only thing you can do is try to do better, to try and be better. And I don't want to, like, brush aside his actions. I also don't want to brush aside his attempts to find uh, redemption and find healing and find a path forward in life, and so I don't want to I don't want to push either aside in either direction. I want to acknowledge them that it is worth noting that Cabrera did go to great lengths to then try and 
fix the problem and come to terms with it. Now, unfortunately, this wouldn't be the end of Cabrera's battle of alcohol in this time period as he would be arrested in 2011 for a suspected DUI where his behavior is clearly out of control. There were reports of him threatening a bar owner with violence when they asked him to leave. He was reportedly when pulled over acting so erratically around the police that they contemplated tasering him. He even drank out of a bottle in front of them that clearly things were still difficult and it would take some time for Cabrera to get the, that part of his life back on track. Now, and I will say, by the way, about the tasering thing, we know a little more about police reactions, these sort of situations and their tendency to resort to violence. So take some of that with a grain of salt, obviously, but that is what's in the report. That is what was reported multiple sources as to his behavior for that. So then after that happens, Cabrera's entered into a recovery plan devised by Major League Baseball themselves. He had a round-the-clock companion that helped him stay on course. And again, you got to at least give him some credit for taking the steps and trying to get help. Overcoming alcoholism is not a, an easy battle, and it seems like he was trying at least. And that means something regardless of how much, uh, and I do, condemn his behavior and his actions throughout this time period of his life. Now, going back to baseball. Unfortunately, sometimes in life, and baseball, frankly, team growth isn't uh, linear. As the Tigers would take a step back in 2010, winning just 81 games, finishing at 500 on the season and third in the AL Central, despite improvement from ace Justin Verlander and the emergence of number two starter Max Scherzer. Now, for his part, Cabrera has an all-time season, hitting 328 with 38 home runs, 45 doubles, an MLB-leading 126 RBIs, 111 runs scored, and with an AL-leading 420 OBP and a 1.042 OPS, which is good for an MLB-leading 178 OPS+. He was an all-star, and he won the Silver Slugger Award for the first time since switching leagues while finishing second in MVP voting. Josh Hamilton would win the, that year and rightfully deserved it, outpacing Miggy's 6.5 war with an 8.7 mark. Technically, six other hitters also finished ahead of Cabrera in war, but again, that's thanks to an abysmal one point, uh, negative 1.3 defensive war, which I will admit then depends. Some of this is, I know I've been harping on the defense, but some of this will also depend on how heavily you weigh defense. If if the question is, did Cabrera's offense factor into Tigers' wins more than his defense hindered them? Of course. Absolutely. Was he the second best hitter in the American League that year? Absolutely. If that's what matters to you the most, then I think, especially at first base, where the defense isn't as essential, the hitting outweighs the defense to a larger degree than if he was, uh, than if he was at a different position. So I get the second place finish. I think it's fair. It's not how I view it. You know how, if you listen to this podcast regularly, how heavily I weigh defense. And that factors in. Now, though, even though he gets the second place finish here, don't worry, though. This won't be Miggy's last shot at winning an MVP. More is on the horizon. 2011 will be a massive year both for Cabrera and for the Tigers, who had a Victor Martinez Johnny Peralta, Alex Avila, and Brendan Bosch in the offseason to the offense, and Brad Penny to the rotation, while getting career years from Justin Verlander, who this year would win the Cy Young and the MVP that year, and closer Jose Valverde, and would make a return to the playoffs as a team. 
Now, Miggy's incredible, leading the majors in batting average and OBP with a 344 average and a 448 mark, respectively, as well as in doubles with 48 to go along with 105 RBIs, 111 runs, and 30 home runs. His 1.033 OPS was worth a 179 OPS plus, and he would make the All-Star game once again while finishing fifth in MVP voting. This is correct by straight war, as Jacoby Ellsbury, Jose Bautista, and Dustin Pedroia all finished ahead of Cabrera's career-high 7.6 war mark. I'm a little surprised he didn't finish a little higher than fifth, though, because we love a good narrative. With the Tigers chasing their first playoff berth since losing in the World Series in 2006, Miggy went Nova, the heck, Supernova, in September, hitting 429 with six home runs and 21 RBIs to lead the Tigers to 95 wins while capturing the AL Central crown and sending the Tigers into the ALDS to face the New York Yankees. Now, the El Tigres would win in five games, and Cabrera chipped in with a first-inning three-run home run in Game 2. This advanced the Tigers to the ALCS against the Texas Rangers. Cabrera is incredible in the series, hitting 400 with three home runs and seven RBIs across six games, including two home runs in the deciding Game 6. Unfortunately, Cabrera's heroics would fall short as Detroit's pitching struggled across the entire series, and the Rangers would actually emerge victorious and head to the World Series, ending the Tigers' season. Luckily for them, there was much, much greater glory in store for this team in the years to come. Now, still hungry for a second World Series belt, Cabrera absolutely destroyed the ball in 2012. Across 161 games, he had an AL leading 330, leading all of baseball in home runs and RBIs with 44 and 139, respectively. That's right, this is the Triple Crown year. And before we get anything else, I want to talk about how monumental this Triple Crown win really is. Scott Pazancy's write-up for The Athletic does a fantastic job of making the case for this. This season is really the best Triple Crown year ever. Most Triple Crowns occurred before the year 1910 and almost always featured sub-20 home run totals. For more insight on what baseball was like back then, check out my episode on Home Run Baker. It's a really lay that sort of world out there during that time. It's a completely different game. Several Triple Crowns occurred when there were less than 10 teams in each league, so they have far less competition. There hadn't been a Triple Crown winner in 45 years when Miggy did it, and the quality of pitching and the difficulty of hitting has increased exponentially since then. It's also worth noting that basically outside of Karl Yastrzemski winning it in 1967, most Triple Crowns occurred before segregation, and we all know we have to take a lot of pre-segregation achievements with a grain of salt. Really, if you want to dive into all the numbers and, and everything, read Poznanski's fantastic article for the full argument. It's well worth the read, but I think when you take in how much baseball has changed and, and the fact that he had to do it against a far larger player pool and he did it post-integration, there's really a great argument this is the best triple crown season in baseball history. And, oh, oh, by the way, did I mention he also hit 40 doubles that season and led the majors in slugging and OPS? He's named an all-star easily that year. He wins the Silver Slugger while running away with the MVP award, winning it for the first time in his career. Interestingly enough, this is actually a pretty controversial win, though as many thought the award should have gone to Mike Trout. This makes total sense. Cabrera was worth 7.1 war that year, but Trout was worth an astounding 10.5 war. Uh, a truly historic season in his own. 10.5 war is astronomical. I think 
if I go back to my memory of this time period, I think, and I think if you actually go to the Mike Trout episode, now that I think about it, I called this a highway robbery that Cabrera won the MVP over Trout. I remember thinking at the time in, in, in real time that as it was happening, that Trout should have won. I totally get giving the award to one of the most more outwardly historic seasons that hadn't happened in more than half a century almost. Uh, on a popular team, a playoff team that was chasing a World Series, I get it. I I, I think it should have probably gone to Trout. I, again, I think on the Trout episode, I, I say, but I get it. I do get it. Sometimes you have to go with history and the narrative. I think that's valid. Now, uh, it's it, it's also worth noting that this was there were more achievements in this season. This is also the season Cabrera became the first Detroit Tiger to hit 30 home runs in five straight seasons. And again, all of this, leading league in home runs, the five straight seasons of 30 home runs, this all with Comerica Park being one of the most notorious parks for keeping the ball in the yard. So he's playing one of the harder parks to hit home runs in uh, as his home park, and he's still doing this. That's part of what makes us really, truly impressive. Now, the Tigers got the job done as well, winning 88 games and the AL Central. In the first round, they would face Oakland, and Cabrera wasn't much of a factor, hitting just 250 with two doubles and one RBI across five games. Regardless, Detroit would win the series and head to the ALCS to face the evil empire, the New York Yankees. Cabrera came alive in this series, hitting 313 across four games, then a home run with three doubles and driving in four runs. Now, in case you caught your ear, you heard right. The series lasted just four games, but not in the way you would have expected. That's right, the Tigers would come out of the series the victors, having carved a path to the World Series. The Tigers had recently been to the World Series in 2006, where they'd come up empty. It's worth noting that it was just the second time the Tigers had seen the World Series since winning it in 1984, and the third time since 1968. So say it was a big deal in Detroit was an understatement. Miggy would struggle for the most part in the World Series against the Giants, hitting just 231, but he wasn't the only one. The Giants' rotation was a formidable one, throwing out, and remember these pitchers are in their prime still at this point. Barry Zito, Madison Bumgarner, Matt Kane, and Ryan Vogelsong. Heck, they had Tin Lincecum coming out of the bullpen in this game. So that's what they were throwing at them, and it would work pretty effectively. The Tigers would get shut out in games two and three, and as you would suspect, that did not bode well for the Tigers' chances to win the series. And indeed, for the second time in the past six years, the Tigers would head into the offseason as the second-best team in the league. Now, before we jump into whether or not Miguel Cabrera could follow up on one of the greatest hitting seasons of all time here, actually, since we're coming up on roughly the 45 to 50-minute mark here already in her, her episode, I apologize for going so long. Let's actually take another break here real quick. Get some water, catch your breath, come back, and then we'll jump right into seeing if Mickey could follow up on his MVP winning season here. Welcome back. If you thought Miguel Cabrera was done setting the American League on fire, you would be wrong. Following up on a Triple Crown MVP winning season would seem like an impossible task, but not only did Mickey do it, he actually was better in 2013. Across the 148 games, he led the majors in all three triple slash line stats with a 348 average, a 442 OBP, and a 1.078 OPS, which is good for a 190 OPS plus. He had another 44 home runs and drove in 137 runs. He finished uh, just nine home runs and RBI away from winning a second consecutive triple crown, 
while hitting better across the slash line in every category to go along with 26 doubles and 103 runs scored. He's an obvious all-star and silver slugger, and once again, Miguel Cabrera would run away with the MVP voting, winning his second consecutive MVP. His 7.5 war was second in the AL, once again behind Trout's 8.9 mark, but uh, this award was less in the Juan Gonzalez zone, so to say, than in 2012. This one really boils down to how you feel about defense. It really does. Because Trout was an elite defender out in center field, and as we mentioned, Miggy is a terrible defender at first base. But Cabrera hit 17 more home runs than Trout with a 25-point advantage in batting average, and he beat him in every triple-slash category. He drove in almost 40 more RBIs and only scored six fewer runs. Obviously, Trout trounced him in stolen bases, but obviously in every other way, Cabrera was a better hitter in almost every measurable way. And I get how that would be enough to win the award, even if, again, I I really do value defense, and you know that. And, again, I would have voted for Trout. If I had the vote, would have gone Trout for both of these seasons. But I get giving it to Mickey and think he was deserving of the award. And, by the way, to give you an idea of just how epic this season was for Cabrera as a hitter, only six hitters in the history of baseball have had at least a three thirty batting average, the four forty two OBP, and a 1.078 OPS with 44 home runs, 137 RBIs in a single season. Only two of them have done so since 1938, Manny Ramirez in 1999 and Miguel Cabrera in 2013. So maybe it's not so crazy he won the MVP that year. It's two pretty historic seasons back-to-back. Rallying around their MVP, the Tigers had a heck of a season, winning 93 games, and for the third year in a row, they won the AL Central. Now, hungry for redemption, they headed to the playoffs to once again face the Oakland Athletics in the ALDS. Across the five-game series, Cabrera would hit 250 with a home run and three RBIs. The Tigers would emerge victorious. Now, with the baseball gods of symmetry, the Tigers would face the Yankees in the ALCS, but unfortunately, fate doesn't work that way. Instead, they would face the Boston Red Sox. Cabrera would hit well in the series, hitting 278 across uh, the six-game series with a home run and six RBIs. But unfortunately, once again, as would be the theme across Cabrera's tenure with the Tigers, they would come up just short, losing to the Red Sox in six games. Now, Mickey won a World Series in his rookie year, and he would end up spending the entire rest of his career trying to get back there. And it just never would never would happen for him, unfortunately. And the sad secret was, he'd actually only even see the playoffs one more time in his career from here on out. And that wasn't really the only secret the offseason would hold. Miggy was just 31 heading into the 2014 season. There was a ton of wear and tear on his treads. Since he came into the league at 20 years old, he was already in his 11th season and played in at least 150 games all but his rookie year. That's a lot of games. Actually, before we get into Cabrera's struggles with alcohol for much of his career and we know the toll that takes on the body. We've seen that throughout several episodes and several players' stories. So it's not a shock that his body was starting to wear down, even if he was only 31. In 2013, he had missed some time with a groin injury, and that was a harbinger of things to come. Cabrera just signed an eight-year contract extension as well. Things get a little dicey from here. Now, while he wouldn't miss any time this season playing in 159 games, his power output absolutely plummeted, dropping all the way to his scant 25 home runs. And this is one of those things I think we talked about, like Sean Green and several other players that we talked about. That you know when there's an injury or when something's up, when the power plummets. When they just forget how to hit home runs at the level they could before. That's usually a pretty sure sign of an injury. 
Now, it might not all be due to the injury, though, because it is worth noting he did lead the American League with 52 doubles. And you have to imagine in most seasons, 10 or so of those go over the fence. So maybe it was just bad luck. But still, it was an it felt like an ill omen at the time. Now he did still hit 313 on the year with an 895 OPS, which is still good for a 150 OPS plus. To go along with a 109, sorry, to go along with 109 RBIs and 101 runs, he was still a, a valuable hitter by all means, but didn't quite look like his MVP destroyer world self. He was still worth 5.1 WAR that season and made the All Star game while finishing ninth in MVP voting. The Tigers would still win 90 games anyways on the backs of several emerging young stars like J.D. Martinez and Nick Castellanos, and they would win the NL Central. I mean, blech, they would win the AL Central for the fourth year running to yet again make the playoffs. They would face Baltimore in the ALDS, and while Cabrera was great in the three-game series, hitting 364 with a solo home run, Detroit would have their postseason run cut short by the Orioles. And as I mentioned before, at this point, the wheels start to come off for the Tigers, who who had a lot of aging players that kind of were in the twilights of their careers. And, and, and Cabrera, the wheels would come off for Cabrera pretty much after the season as well. And this would indeed be his last trip to the playoffs. In 2015, Cabrera would see a resurgence of his power, but unfortunately his body couldn't hold up the entire season. A grade 3 calf strain in July limited him to just 119 games. He was very good in those 119 games, leading the majors in average with a 338 mark while leading the American League in OBP with a 440 mark. But he hit just 18 home runs and 23 doubles with 76 RBIs and 64 runs scored. He did put up a 974 OPS, which is good for a 169 OPS plus, but his slugging was down for the third season in a row, and it was clear a lot of that was propped up by his OBP. He would again be named to the All-Star Game and won the Silver Slugger Award, but finished with a 4.9 war and ended up 11th in the MVP voting. J.D. Martinez again flourished for Detroit. Pretty much everyone else in the offense had off years, and the Tigers' record plummeted, finishing 74-87 and and dead last in the AL Central. Unfortunately, from here on out, they would spend a lot of time right around here in the standings, really through the rest of Miggy's career. Now, I often say in this podcast, the old saying, I'm pretty sure either came from Descartes or one of the great philosophers or Dragon Ball Z, I can't really remember. But it was that a candle burns brightest right before it goes out. And that's the perfect way to describe the 2016 season for Cabrera. Playing in 158 games, he hits 316 with 38 home runs and 31 doubles with 108 RBIs and 92 runs scored to go along with a 956 OPS, which is good for a 155 OPS+. plus. He's worth 5.1 war and is an all-star for the last real time in his career and wins his last silver slugger while finishing 9th in MVP voting. This would be the last genuinely good year for Cabrera. It's not all doom and gloom, though as Cabrera would hit his 500th career double, along with reaching 2,400 hits in 2,000 games, making him the fifth youngest player to ever do so, while recording his 1,500th RBI. Now, 2017 is where it all would really start to fall apart for Cabrera. Starting with that year's World Baseball Classic, Miggy would be hounded all season long by back issues and a right groin strain. He would hit several milestones, including his 1,000th career extra base hit, his 1600th RBI, and his 450th home run. Finally, in September, he would be diagnosed with two herniated discs in his back, which would help explain his overall brutal season line of a 249 average with just 16 home runs and 22 doubles in 130 games. 
Now, for the first time since his rookie year in 2003, Miguel Cabrera, 34 years old, did not receive any MVP votes in a season. That's incredible when you really think about it. 2003, we're now talking 2017. So for, what, 13 seasons, 14 seasons, Miguel Cabrera received MVP votes. That's crazy. That's a, that's almost a decade and a half of receiving MVP votes. It's just, it's absolutely incredible. It's an incredible run. Now, from here, though, things are going to get ugly. It's not the only bad news or results that Miguel Cabrera got that season as. In 2017, the former mistress of Miguel Cabrera sued him. Her name was Belkis Rodriguez, sued him for $100,000 monthly child support. Apparently, Cabrera had a long affair with the woman, and they had actually had two children together. Oh, at this point in 2017, it would have been like 11 and 8. And it became a long and ugly legal battle over what Cabrera owed. Cabrera felt that it should be more like $10,000 or in that range, and she was demanding $100,000 based on the idea of uh, Florida law and sort of what Cabrera was making at the time. And it became very ugly and very public. And it certainly was not a good look for Cabrera. Obviously, it's being clear that he had a, a mistress and then had children with her, all these different things. It just was not a great look for Cabrera. And a lot of people thought he was going to just quietly go off into the night at that point in his career, let alone then stick around for five more years. But it was something that it didn't make as much noise as you expected it to, but certainly changed the way a lot of people viewed Cabrera at the time. Just another kind of mark that will come up later. So we're not going to spend a ton of time here. So... Miguel Cabrera played, what, one, two, three, four, five, six more seasons. And all of them some variation of not great. And he doesn't play over 136 games in any of those seasons. The only two of those seasons does he have an OPS plus over 100. And one of them is a 104 season. He only has an OPS over 800 in one of those seasons. He hits no more than 15 home runs in any of those seasons. It's just not great. And obviously I do understand that one of those seasons is the pandemic-shortened 2020 season, so that you throw that one out. But it's just once when you're that big of a guy, when your power and that is in, in your leverage and whatnot, once your back goes like that, that's it. You just lose your you just lose your power. And then there's no getting it back once you get to that place. And he's 35 at that point, so that's not shocking. But that's the tail end of his career here. He'll win he'll get one more all-star in 2022, but it's it's more of a honorary sort of lifetime achievement award sort of thing. And then he gets a nice tour of the league where everyone gives him gifts and presents at the end of the at the end of the year. It just really was a uh an unfortunate end to his career because I feel like that's what people focus on. People focus on that big contract he got that obviously was worth it for about two, three years and then not worth it at all for the last five to six years. And I, I think they're missing, again, the forest for the trees here. You look at, even if you were to claim, oh, was he a good Detroit Tiger? Was it worth it? And you look and go, so if you go to 2008 when he came over, he finishes 13th in MVP voting. 2009, fourth. Then he goes second, fifth, wins two MVPs. 9th, 11th, and 9th. That's an incredible run in terms of value for Detroit. So it, you can't argue he wasn't good for the Tigers, even if the last five to six years were really just genuinely awful for what he was getting paid. You can't let that bog down our opinion on what Miguel Cabrera uh, accomplished during his time in the league.
so yeah, so that I believe now Miggy is working doing philanthropy work, especially over in Venezuela, in his home country, and is I believe working with the front office as like an advisor in with Detroit. And so that's Miguel Cooper's career. He just retired this year, obviously, so we don't have a ton post-career for him. And I think that there's there's a lot of good, a ton of things that he's one of the best hitters to ever play the game. There's no disputing that. There's a lot of bad, too. It's hard to look past the domestic abuse situation and the alcoholism, the DUIs, and the and the the child support issues that he ran across where, you know, having a mistress and having having two children with her, it, it's tough to reconcile a lot of that with the player that, that we loved and respected. It, it's difficult. I mean, it's a difficult thing to parse, but nonetheless, it's an incredible Major League Baseball career. And a, uh, and a career you can't tell the story of baseball without talking about Miguel Cabrera. It's that simple. And when we, what we're going to do here is, we all know the drill, we're going to take our last break here, and then we're going to come back and we're going to ask first, is Miguel Cabrera a Hall of Famer? And, and then we're going to figure out where he falls on our list, and we'll, we'll rank him. Welcome back. The first question, is Miguel Cabrera a Hall of Famer? And I think as a ball player, it's a no-brainer. I really do. Sure, he's right on the edge of the 70 war Scott Rowland mark. And he was a genuinely terrible defender at both third base and first base. But he was one of, if not the most feared hitter of his generation, the side of Albert Pujols. He has 3,000 hits, which that should get him in automatically in and of itself. And he had over 500 home runs. Over To go to those 3,000 hits, of the 33 hitters with 3,000 hits, only 14 have a career batting average higher than Cabrera's 306 batting average. Of those 14, only Stan Musial, Tris Speaker, and Ty Cobb did so with a higher career OPS. And only Stan Musial did so post-integration. He's a two-time MVP, and while I will openly admit I think those MVPs should have gone to Mike Trout, I get why he won them and do think they're valid wins. Oh, and that's before we get into the fact that he won the first Triple Crown since the 1960s, and won perhaps the most impressive Triple Crown ever. And he nearly repeated the feat the year after that, too, so he almost did it twice. He's a 12-time All-Star with seven Silver Sluggers. Come on, he has a career 140 OPS+. Plus. Oh, we mentioned how he ranked amongst first basemen at the top of the podcast. And when it all starts to add up, I think it's a no-brainer Hall of Fame case. But that's as a player. That's before we get into Cabrera's trouble with alcoholism and more specifically with the DUI in the event with his wife. And if they're disqualifying for you, I certainly understand how I am on domestic violence and domestic abuse and the hard stance I take on it. It's always tough to parse everything out. Clearly, if you look at that incident... Both parties were reported to have wounds, and I have no tolerance, like I said, for domestic abuse. And according to the transcripts of uh, Angel's, uh, Angel Cabrera's, that's Miguel Cabrera's wife, the 911 call she made, he did indeed hit her, according to her. And given that she was wounded when the police arrive, I see no reason not to believe her. Occam's Razor says that's probably the case then. And... For me, that violates the character clause. And for those who might say, what if she was hitting him? He had wounds too. Doesn't matter. He's a giant muscle-bound baseball player. He's in, She's no threat to him. Yeah, sure, he was scratched. But, like, he wouldn't have played a game later that day. Like, he wasn't hurt or in danger. There's no excuse for that if it did happen. And like I said, 
given the facts as I see them and what I've seen laid out in the reports. I have no reason not to believe her. And then that's before you get into the later issues with having uh, two children with a mistress and the lawsuit surrounding his child support, which in my weird twisted morality, I'm more annoyed, offended by the refusal to pay child support than I am him having a mistress. Um, these are all issues to push his Hall of Fame case back down to a borderline case for me, if not to a no, because that's how strongly I feel about domestic violence. Now, I think he'll likely get in because he genuinely was a generational hitter, and for the most part, his transgressions have been pretty swept under the rug. So I don't think when it comes to the media and the reporters, I don't think it will really stand in the way much. Not a hullabaloo was made about it at the time. In fact, I think I mentioned it earlier, but most of the articles you find from that time period are, are state that the wife hasn't been charged with anything. So I, I don't think it's going to be a major Im- impediment to his getting voted into the Hall of Fame. I do also want to give credit where credit is due. It does seem like Cabrera has made a genuine attempt at rehabilitation, and that has to count for something. Like that, If we're going to hold against him his his sins, we have to also give him credit for his attempts at redemption and his attempts to to make right by those sins. So it counts for something. I'm just not sure how much. That's something I'm really struggling with internally right now. With all that in mind, I lean yes that he's a Hall of Famer and certainly think that he will be a Hall of Famer. I, I just don't feel completely great about it once you factor in the non-baseball issues that surround Cabrera. So now with that all in mind, let's tackle our one last question here, which, you know, is why we're all here, which is where does he end up on the list? To refresh our memories, uh, since it's been two weeks since we were last together, let me revisit the list here real quick. To read off the top 10, number one is Sadaharu O, number two is Satchel Page, number three is Ted Williams, number four is Josh Gibson, number five is Barry Bonds, number six is Mickey Mantle, number seven is Greg Maddox, number eight is Mike Trout. Number nine is Ricky Henderson, and number 10 is Ken Griffey Jr. To go through, we'll go through, because we're going to be mostly hanging out in this area, we'll go through the top 25 here. So, Ichiro is number 11, George Brett is number 12, Adrian Beltre is number 13, Shoei Otani is number 14, Clayton Kershaw is 15, Eddie Murray is 16, Edgar Martinez is 17, Sandy Koufax is 18, Tony Gwynn is number 19, Hank Greenberg is number 20, Brooks Robinson is number 21, uh, is number 22, Joey Votto is number 23, Scott Rowland's number 24, and Ron Santos is number 25. Or jumping down the list, Johan Santana is number 30, Robin Yount is number 35, Fred McGriff is number 40, 45 is Roberto Alomar, number 50 is Kenley Jansen, number 55 is Evan Longoria, number 60 is Moises Alou, 65 is Kyle Hendricks, number 70 is Doc Gooden, 75 is Aramis Ramirez. And then finally, at the end of the list, number 80 is James Paxton. And I think a good place to start with this is at with Joey Votto at number 23. They're pretty close in war. I mean, he has 67.3 war. Votto has 64.4 war. I think Votto will probably surpass him by the end of his career. And, and that's impressive when you consider that Votto's played nearly 700 fewer games than Miggy. I think that's pretty telling. Cabrera has about 150 home runs on Votto and a career and a higher career batting average. But interesting enough, uh, Votto has a higher career OBP, OPS, and OPS plus. Miggy has won two MVPs. The Votto's won, even though again they were a little, a little questionable. Those wins, 
But Cabrera also has the Triple Crown. He's got four batting titles and twice Votto's All-Star appearances. I think even with the personal issues, I, I think Miggy ends up above Votto. It just the Triple Crown alone, I think, it puts him up above him. So that I think... I think because I don't want to, I don't know how much to ding him for the personal stuff in some ways. So I, I think he ends up above Votto here. We have a bunch of similar players in Arenado, Brooks Robinson. We've kind of got this mush of players are all Votto, Roland, Nolan Arenado, Brooks Robinson are all the same in a lot of ways. And so I think, I think Miggy goes above all of them as well. And so we run into a familiar discussion that we've had many times, and that's Hank Greenberg uh, there at number twenty. And while Miggy has Greenberg beaten war and most counting stats, I think I've mentioned this previously that Greenberg lost nearly five seasons to, to World War II. So they should be much more even than that. Um, and I think if, if he had those five seasons, Greenberg would have surpassed Cabrera. Both won two MVPs. And Greenberg probably would have won at least one more because he won his two MVPs like right before he went to the war. He probably I like to think he would have won one more. And his MVPs were were not particularly questionable in the way that Cabrera's were, where we thought they should have probably gone to Mike Trout. Greenberg doesn't have that sort of question mark. Greenberg also has Cabrera beat in average, OBP, slugging, OPS, and OPS+. Plus. He's already a Hall of Famer, which we know we get bonus points for. And he's a Jewish icon in baseball. And, and you cannot over, I've said this a million times, you cannot overvalue that uh, given the time period especially that he was playing in he won two championships to Cabrera's one you know but on the other hand Cabrera has that triple crown and that triple crown counts for a lot that is a I mean it's a, it's a near impossible task and he pulled it off and again he almost pulled off twice this is a tough one I'm not gonna lie Cabrera's worth negative 21.4 defensive war in his career, while Greenberg was worth just negative 4.4. Both, neither were good defenders by any stretch of the, the imagination. But uh, some of that might have, some of that got, might have gotten closed because Greenberg, if he had played those last years, probably be close to like negative 10. But still, Miggy was a significantly worse defender. And I think when you take that combined with the domestic abuse issues, that to me cancels out the triple crown advantage. That's how I'm, I'm logicking this out in my brain. Logicking, that's certainly a word, right? Yeah. After an hour and 15 minutes or so, I think uh, my brain is a little fried here. <laughs> um, but I think it made sense there. Then when you add in Greenberg's cultural significance and, and, and having no real blemishes on his, his record that way, and the things he had to overcome as a Jewish man in the 1930s and, and what he had to overcome. And then also, by the way, to go serve his country and lose part of his baseball career, frankly, for a country that didn't, you know, seem to apparently like he, he or the, or Jewish people all that much at the time period. I think that matters. And I, I think for now, I'm going to have to st stick with Greenberg here. And I feel pretty, pretty right there, but I'm more than happy to take arguments to the contrary. But with that, that would make Miguel Cabrera the new number 21 on our list here, which I think accurately factors in how great of a hitter he was, how terrible of a defender he was, the highs and the lows of his career, and also the issues that come along with, with his transgressions. So I think that's a pretty balanced and fair evaluation of Miguel Cabrera. And number 21 on the list is pretty darn good when you're talking about 80 different players that we've evaluated now. Uh, so far, so good. That's our episode. Uh, thank you so much for uh, sticking with us. 
and for listening to the whole thing here. Um, Cabrera's a complicated guy, and it was fun to get to discuss him and talk about how great he was and also talk about some of the things that hold him back. I don't... I think next week we're going to continue for a little bit until Hall of Fame voting is done or probably close to it. We'll probably stick with some of the retirees. Maybe we'll do some Hall of Famers. So either I think next week is either going to be, or next episode, I should say, will either be Nelson Cruz or Todd Helton. I think it's going bouncing between. So if you have thoughts on which one you'd rather do, uh, hit me up on Twitter. Uh, you can find the podcast at LB Legacies on X uh, or Twitter or whatever. And you can find me at Daniel J. Port, or you can email the podcast at longballlegacies at gmail.com. If there's one of those you'd rather do over the other, uh, I'm going to do them both, but just which order you'd like to hear them in. And then other than that, uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend, folks. I know most of us have gotten hit with some pretty big snow and some storms over the week, but it sounds like it's about to heat up. Hopefully you all made it through there in one piece. Um, Enjoy the rest of your January. Thank you so much, folks, and we'll talk to you in two weeks.